morning, which is from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 15. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work, as it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, and their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, you know my name, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm Richard, I'm, I'm on staff here at Hope, um, and I'm excited to open up God's word with you this morning. Who here has a hobby? Show of hands. It's pretty much everyone. Are you any good at your hobby? Or do you do it for the love of it? <laughs> well, I dare say you're better at your hobby than I am at mine. You see, I fancy myself a bit of a bear home brewer. Every few months, um, Fred and I, we try and improve on our previous attempt. <coughs> and oh, we've had some, we've had some doozies. <laughs> but here's the thing. No matter how bizarre our previous attempt, I still, I still find that I'm happy to fork out money for the next potential travesty. <laughs> we live in hope, don't we, Fred? <laughs> my heart is in home brewing, even if my skill is not. Is your heart in a hobby or a passion? And do you find your money gravitating towards it? There's certainly nothing wrong with that. God has put these in our lives for our enjoyment. But do you find the same enjoyment in being generous with your giving? I'm going to look at why we have a problem with this passage from 2 Corinthians. And then I want to show you why our solution can be found in the three persons of the Trinity. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would still us in your presence. Open our hearts to your word and give us ears to hear and understand what you are saying to us. Amen. So we are in a four-week series on stewardship. 
Stu has spoken on the way we are to nurture our relationship with God. And last week, we heard from Zishan about the way we can steward our talents that God has given us. This morning, I'm going to discuss the way that we steward our money. You can often tell where a society places its value by the number of words it produces for a certain concept. In English, we, are, we have only one word for rice, but I've heard that in Japanese there are seven. However, we have over 40 words for money. It's no wonder that our Lord devotes almost 2,000 verses of scripture to this topic. Not because it's particularly important for him, but because it's so very important for us. It permeates so much of our thought and time. So Paul the Apostle is writing to the church in Corinth and discussing the arrangements for a gift which the Corinthians, a couple of years earlier, had agreed to give to the church in Jerusalem, which is suffering as a result of a severe famine. Paul, Titus, and the others are eager to see the Corinthians demonstrate their generosity. And Paul reminds them here of the gift that they had pledged. Had there been rumors that the Corinthians may be wavering in their commitment? Was their enthusiasm beginning to wane? They excel in every other area, faith, speech, knowledge, complete earnestness, and love. And Paul says, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. Chapter 8, verse 7. The Corinthians are a relatively wealthy community. And Paul reminds them of how the impoverished Macedonian churches were exceedingly generous to other churches in the past, giving out of their poverty. Looking at our passage, we see Paul urging the Corinthians not to just do the minimum to fulfill their obligations, but to give generously and to do so with a cheerful heart. So it's clear that God wants his people to give. Here are some ways not to give. Begrudgingly, verse 7, reluctant to help those in need, reluctant to sow into the work of mission. Fearfully, not believing that God can or will supply all our needs, verse 8. Proudly and loudly, enjoying the praise of those around us more than the approval of God. Transactionally, verse 9. Treating our giving as an investment that we expect to be multiplied and repaid into our, our account for our pleasure. No. Instead, we are to give joyfully. We should each give what we have decided to give in our hearts, verse 7. Expectantly. Knowing that we will be enriched in every way and that God will make us abound in every good work, verse 11. Confidently. Our wealth is not as fickle as we suspect. It is God who supplies the seed to the sower, verse 10. And humbly. Acknowledging the privilege of being in a position to give to others. Verse 14. Paul's desire for the Corinthian church is that they would revel in being part of the wider church. He wishes that they would share in the joy of fellowship with the churches in other regions. And as a result of their giving, 
those churches will thank and praise God for their obedience. Do we revel in being part of the wider church? Do we actually see the churches around Dunedin, New Zealand, and the world as our brothers and sisters? Or is that just the language we use? Unfortunately for me, the problems that Paul and the Corinthians wrestled with feel all too familiar. Something that started off feeling like a privilege and a joy to contribute to, over time becomes a burden and an unwelcome obligation. What hinders my generosity? Is it a poverty mindset? Is it anxiety? Perhaps past bad experiences? Maybe resentment or judgment of the receiver? Do I consider that they are worthy or grateful enough? Do any of these ring true for you? Why did the Corinthians and why do I struggle here so often? Why do my heart and my treasure not always find their home in the same place as God's? Some people find it easier to be generous with their money. Some people are in a position to give more than others. Some of us find it easier to be generous with our time or our prayers or in service. And this is the diversity of gifts within the body of Christ. God cares deeply about these things. But it doesn't mean that we could ignore the Bible's teaching on financial generosity. So, it is clear that God is calling us to give, but how can we give in a way that honors God? How can we be good stewards of the resources that God has given us? Here's the point I try and avoid. The giving that Jesus asks of us will often hurt. It will be sacrificial. Consider the poor widow in the book of Luke who gave her two copper coins to the temple treasury. Could she really be viewing her offering in a rational human sense? Why would she give the last of what she had knowing that it would make effectively no difference to the total received that day? And why did Jesus say that she had put in more than all the others? Why did this matter to him? Jesus said that she had put in all she had to live on. This is sacrificial. This is not just giving from what's left after expenses. Sacrificial giving is not blind or thoughtless. It is measured and considered. We count the cost. C.S. Lewis said, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. What about Elijah, who asked a different widow to use the very last of her flour and oil to make a meal for him? She was about to prepare a final meal for herself and her son before succumbing to starvation. Sacrificial giving like this is a true act of faith. This kind of giving keeps us in a relationship with God where we rely on him for provision, on him to supply all our needs. We would much prefer that God stipulated an exact amount we are to give, knowing that he couldn't then ask any more of us. We would prefer a certain outcome, 
like the prosperity gospel supposes. We will be guaranteed to be financially well off so long as we give into the offering basket. We would like today's giving to justify tomorrow's stinginess. But God wishes us to have a liberty in our giving that is free from legalistic requirements and upper limits. Look at the language Paul uses in today's message. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor so that you can be generous on every occasion. This is the language of abundance and generosity. You know, when Jesus visits Zacchaeus' house for dinner, <clears throat> and, Jesus, and Zacchaeus says to Jesus, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. But Jesus didn't say to Zac, let's slow down, be rational. And he didn't say to Mary, my feet don't need quite so much perfume. That's right, he praised them. Jesus himself commends real examples of extravagant generosity. So, it's clear to me from our reading of scripture that God expects and rewards the financial generosity of his people. We know that our hearts will always be found where our treasure is, so where is that? And is it always where God's heart is? If your honest answer, like mine, is no, don't worry, God has made a way. And we find our answer in the person of the Father, the work of the Son, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The person of the Father, the work of the Son, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at God our Father. His character is self-giving. He loves to give good gifts to his children. He created a world full of beauty, resource, and companionship for us to enjoy. And whilst he reigns over all, he pauses what he is doing to listen to the request of, his, of the smallest of his children. He is an extravagantly generous God. Let's look at verse 10 of our passage. Now he who supplies the seed to to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. This is a critical verse. Look at how Paul does not say that God will increase your store of grain, but will increase your store of seed and enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. God wants us to be generous and will reward our generosity by giving us more to be generous with. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much, as we heard from Zishan last week. This is why God asks us to give. It's his invitation to partner with him in the work of his kingdom on earth. And the thing that so many of us crave, that we rely on our finances for, security, is offered to us by the Father. So we do not wait until we are financially self-dependent before we increase our generosity to the level that is sacrificial. Because what exactly is financial self-dependence anyway? An absence of risk? An assurance that rust and moths and thieves 
can't threaten us. When we give beyond our level of comfort, we are saying to God, my security is in you, not my wealth. And these resources are not ours anyway. They are his. He is the truly generous one here. Let's look at our passage again, not in light of our generosity, but God's. I've highlighted it in red. You will reap generously. You will experience abundant blessing. You will have all you need at all times. You will abound in every good work. God will supply and increase your store of seed. He will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way. The Lord's people will be supplied. The hearts of those receiving your generosity will go out to you because of the surpassing grace that God has given you. Note here the language of abundance, not merely adequacy. It's all about the actions of God in this passage, not us. When we realize that God doesn't love generosity because he needs our resources, but because he wants to pour out his resources into our lives, we read the passage very differently. We give because we know who our father is. Secondly, let's look at Jesus. What would cause him to enter into his creation as a mortal man and suffer a brutal death at the hands of those he created? It was a deep love for those same people, an unshakable devotion and obedience to his father. When we say we have been crucified with Christ, that means that we also commit to a devotion and obedience to the father. Without Christ, we are lost in sin. Giving does not alleviate guilt or pay the cost. Only the cross can do that. And that is why Paul emphasizes that we cannot give under compulsion or obligation. Our giving must be out of gratitude and with a cheerful heart. We reflect the God that changed us. Like Jesus, let us give in a cheerful obedience, not compulsion. And we don't obey by trying harder to to overcome ourselves. No, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. From him, we have received the gift of life and the everlasting security of the promise of eternal life with him. And thirdly, the spirit of God lives within us to move us. We cannot talk ourselves into generosity. It is the spirit that changes our hearts and allows us to become cheerful givers. Even when it's sacrificial, when it hurts, He allows us to give in joy. We are not subject to a burden of legalism. We are invited into a relationship of sharing. That same spirit that inspired such extravagance in Zacchaeus and Mary begins a new work within our hearts and draws us into that kingdom work that sees burdens being lifted off the shoulders of the downtrodden. Instead of clutching with white knuckles onto the few dollars that we have on this earth, we experience and participate in the joy of giving that is the hallmark of the kingdom economy. 
So our generosity becomes a response to the surpassing grace of God that we experience. It's no mistake that you are hearing this theme of God's surpassing grace throughout the sermon series. It is only by this grace that we are enabled to steward what God has given us. We don't owe God X percent of our income or whatever it is that we take from our reading of scripture. We owe him everything. Not that we simply give all our money away, but that all our resources are used with him in mind. A mark of a life changed by the gospel is that of joyful, sacrificial generosity. Like Paul says, our giving and obedience accompanies our confession of the gospel. Our entire value system has been turned upside down. We can still enjoy the things we spend money on, our hobbies, our passions. God has put these things in our life for our enjoyment. But we also have a deep joy in using our money to bless others. Our hearts and our money should ultimately gravitate towards God. It was the joy of Jesus to obey his father. He who had everything left heaven, became poor to save the lost and give up his very life. In the previous chapter, Paul says to the Corinthians, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Chapter 8, verse 9. Jesus is our motive. When we are generous, we are continuing the work of the work of Jesus in his gospel by the grace that is from God alone. We've been taught by our culture that relationships are transactional. God says differently. It's not about the numbers. It's about a deep trust for a God who loved us so much that he would give sacrificially of himself to pay the debt that we had amassed. Because the transaction that needed to take place has already taken place. But it had to be one-sided. And thank Jesus for that. For we could never hope to repay the cost of the cross. So yes, we have a problem that our natural inclination is to attribute meaning, security and joy to our money. Left unchecked, our hearts gravitate towards wealth. But the solution to our problem is not found in more money, but in our Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know the security and abundance of the Father. We see the obedience and sacrifice of the Son, and the Spirit of God lives within us to move us. What does a generous church look like? What would a Macedonian church look like in Dunedin? What would be the effect on the city and the culture? Can we imagine for a moment what it would look like to fund the spread of the gospel in our town? To see people set free from poverty? What would the transformational effect in the many, be in the many spheres of our society? Let us not love money, but let's love what we can do with it. What would it look like if we, Hope Church, could grasp 
the surpassing grace of God. Now my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Whom the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. In response to this grace, let's pray. Lord of all, we ask that you would move within us to transform us day by day, more into the image of your son. In obedience to you, he left the riches of heaven to enter into our story and save us from the hell that we had created. He was rich, but for our sakes became poor. Give us a heart like his. Father, might we catch a glimpse of your splendor and majesty to better understand the abundance and extravagance of the God we serve. Give us a freedom with our money that would allow us to be generous on every occasion and would accompany our confession of the gospel. Speak to our hearts. Challenge us. Change us. Give us confidence and compassion when we sow into the work of your kingdom. All that is in the heavens and the earth is yours, and of your own we give you. Amen.